This morning's reading of Daniel is, uh, there's a blend here of, of historical facts and some folklore woven into the message. And we're going to see, not if we can tease it apart, but if we can bring it together in a way that, that gives us a sense of what this message in Daniel and in the Gospel was all about. So as I frequently do when I prepare for the words that I share in the morning, I go to some resource books and I've used the interpreter's Bible before. And in the beginning of the chapel, chapter on Daniel, it says this, quote, the book of Daniel is arguably the most unusual book of the Hebrew Bible. Certainly part of its notoriety can be attributed to the textual and literary problems that have perplexed scholars for generations. Some moderns would suggest that Daniel is also a notoriously dangerous book, a book that has fueled religious speculation as well as contributing to social unrest and revolution. In order to appreciate reading a biblical book of such multifaceted interest, one needs to place Daniel in some literary, historical, and just as important sociological and political context, end quote. What does that all mean? What does that all mean? What does it mean for us? Well, it means that there's a little work to be done. And this morning, I'll begin just a little bit in taking a look at the Bible itself so that we can <clears throat> just understand a bit how the Bible is put together in a way parallel to how some of these stories are put together. So, how many books are there in the Bible that we use? Anybody know? Old Testament, New Testament? 66. There are 39 in the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Bible, and then there are 27 in the New Testament. And that brings us to the combined total of 66 for the Protestant Bible. How many are in the Catholic Bible? Close. 73. The Catholic Bible has eight more books. It has six more books and then some additions to the, the other two. And the additional books in the Catholic Bible are the books of Tobit. Have you heard of the book of Tobit? Judith, Wisdom, Ecclesiastes, you've heard of. The Wisdom of Joshua, the son of Sarah. Baruch, First Maccabees. And then additions to the book of Daniel, and the book of Esther. And the additions are what's called the Apocrypha. And the Protestants generally believe the Apocrypha to be spurious, that they have no inspiration. They are of questionable origin and inspiration. And they are, for the most part, thought to be folklorish. What's interesting to me is that if we go back to the time of the Protestant Reformation, when these two separated a bit. Remember, we all started out in the Catholic Church back in our heritage. So had the Protestant Reformation not created this schism of sorts, which wasn't their intention, Luther really just wanted to sort of fix things that he thought were wrong with others, had that not happened, we would still be using perhaps a Bible of 73 books, but we've got 66. And how about the Greek Orthodox Church, which has similar roots? Did you just say that? See that? 
How many books? There are five more books than the Catholic book. So that brings us up to 78 with the additions, two additions, which makes 80 changes. And they are 1st Esdras, 2nd Esdras, the Prayer of Manasseh, 3rd Maccabees, 4th Maccabees, and there is the 151st Psalm in the Greek Orthodox Bible. We have 150. So now I know what you're saying. You're saying, there he goes again, messing with the Bible. Look, I'm not. I'm really not trying to mess things up. I know that sometimes when we talk about this, and you start saying, oh, well, well, let's not shake this up too much. Let's not take the pillars of faith upon which we rely and the teachings that we've learned and the way that we've read and studied. Don't mess around with it too much. But that's really not what I'm doing. I, it can be unsettling to remind a biblical community such as ours that the Bible is a blend of stories and that it was never meant to be 100% an historical document and it was never meant to pit one denomination or faith tradition against the other, ever. I don't even think it was meant to be debated. It just means that in these examples, and there are more, in these examples we gather inspiration in some ways that are the same and in some ways that are different. But they are all information and inspiration that point to the all-highest God, which I've been using regularly in today's bulletin as a description of God, the all-highest God, which comes out of this time of Daniel. This is the way you will find God referred to in some of their writings. But we have to do this because if we go blasé and we just ignore that these, you know, blasé, blasé, and we ignore these differences that exist, if we hold fast and true to our word and every true in our, every word in our Bible is better and it's true, we miss the power that the Bible has. We miss the lesson and the power of the writings themselves and the communities within which they were written can't just wipe out all those people. And this whole process, Annie knows, others know, it comes under the heading of what we call in studies the uh, biblical exegesis or hermeneutics, taking apart the scripture, looking at it from all different points of view. Because if we simplistically take the Bible at its face value, considering no influence of the times in which it was written, we not only diminish what we can learn from the people who were inspired by these stories, we diminish our own experiences in these times in which God has given us to live with this message written by others, to live and, yes, to struggle. It takes work. And it takes commitment to delve into the hermeneutics, but more it takes a faith that is strong and robust, robust enough so that we have an open mind and we're not afraid of being challenged. We're not afraid of the tension. So with all of that in mind, let's go back to Daniel and let's think about this opening passage of these four men who are in the captivity of the Babylonians following another act of occupation of Jerusalem. So what is the message that these four men in this story, part of it true, part of it folklore, that we, that's there for us today? So let's look at the story itself. 
The genre of this story is called a court story because it's a story that reflects what life was like in the court of the Babylonian kings during the time of captivity. So it tells a story of Daniel and his friends and how they are representative of what this life is for others to understand. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, was the most powerful king of all of Babylonian history. What was his wonder of the world that he was famous for? His architectural wonder. One of the seven wonders of the world. The Hanging Gardens of Babylonia, right? And he was a powerful, mighty king. Yet the timing of this story with Daniel suggests that it wasn't he who was king at the time that it was written. But if you want to convey a powerful message, get some powerful characters. Make sure you've got the ones that can get your point across. And especially if your intention is to show that your God is the all-highest, then pit your God against the mightiest of the Babylonian kings in your story. And Nebuchadnezzar fills the bill. And the message that is trying to be gotten across in this narrative of what life is like in the court, this court story, to be translated and given to others who are living in captivity, is... Here's these four guys insisting on continuing the traditions of their faith and the power of their God to the extent that they end up being the wisest people in the entire court. And the message for those who are living in captivity is simple. God has not forgotten you or us, even in captivity. And we will not forget God either in captivity. And nor will we allow conditions to deter us from our religious practices, our history, our race, our covenant. We will not be defiled even in captivity. And so the test starts out with the Chamberlain. The rising action of the story. Anybody who's studying English, right? There's the introduction, the rising action, the climbing action, climax, declining action. So the whole story is there. There's the intrigue. The anticipation, will the Chamberlain give them permission not to eat the non-kosher foods? Will they survive? Will the kindly disposed Chamberlain be punished or worse? Will the young men come out the strongest? Will they perish or be treated worse? Is their faith justified? Can it be counted upon in these conditions? And more, O Israel, will the God of the All-Highest come through? And of course... God does come through, and the book of Daniel has begun rooted in a story that confirms all of these things and more. Remember, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Shema is attested to in the beginning of the story. So these stories that were then told over and over and over around their fires and their meals and when they would gather within the courts and in captivity with a breath of faith for many thousands living under the captivity. Years and years, by best estimates, 70 years they lived in captivity in the Babylonian Empire. So for a minute, think of the USA. Think of being occupied. Think of all of us living under captivity by some other force for 70 years. Think of the humiliation that we would go through, the disappointment. Think of the loss. Think of what it would be like to have had everything we knew and believed in suddenly taken away. And think of the leaders within these captives in this Babylonian time and the leaders among us. But go back to the leaders in the captivity of the Babylonians. Their role was to keep the people who were captive hopeful, faithful, not giving up, together, connected. 
Think of the stories today of what that might mean. It wouldn't be a narrative, perhaps. It wouldn't be a story told around campfires, or but it would be YouTube, underground newspapers, tweets. We saw that in some of the revolutions in the Arab nations in the last couple of years. Whatever it was, there would be things going on that would galvanize and encourage people to keep the faithful hopeful and ever ready so that we could either live beyond our captors or when the time came to be ready for a revolt. That's the message. You don't give up, even when you're captives. God doesn't abandon you, even when you're in captivity. You're not lost, even when destruction is all around you. And when we look at it this way, we understand a bit why the book of Daniel is thought to have been a dangerous document. Because it showed that even the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar himself, was not more powerful than the God of Israel, the God of the All-Highest. And whatever the conditions, trust in God, have faith in God, and hope in God, and keep your joy, and pray, and perseverance, because you are never lost. So back to today. Over the last two weeks, since the storm, the references to 9-11 and to other tragedies have been all around us. You rarely have a conversation or pick up a newspaper report where somebody isn't talking about how this compares to. And anything like this, any tragedy brings up other tragedies that have gone before, just as any illnesses or losses bring up illnesses and losses that we've known before. We are a people of the narrative, and our stories are connected. We human beings have this consciousness, this ability that is endless, endless in what we can remember, and also endless in what we can project. And it's a consciousness as well that out of which the resilience of our hearts is often expressed. And certainly these last weeks have been an example of that. So for me, as I've said before, when I prepare for Sunday morning and read the readings and write the sermons and choose the hymns and collaborate with Christian on the music and plan with the worship committee and all those things we do, I am acutely aware that this worship takes place within our time and place, but also as it did in a parallel to the readings that we're using. And through it all, while there has been much that has changed, I look for a thread of what has not changed. And what has not changed is that God has not left us. That, to me, is the story. On Thursday of last week, I went for a walk out to Pella Bay Park. I like the trails along Orchard Beach. It's the best kept secret in the Bronx. Nobody is there in the off season. And when I got there this week, they were closed because they were clearing the debris. So I went down the road a bit to City Island and I got a sandwich and I drove down to the end of City Island Avenue and sat in the parking lot and looked out at the sound and ate my sandwich. I decided I was going to come home. So I just turned around. I was driving back home. And I drove up the shore road rather than taking the highway. And the shore road goes through the Bronx and then it goes into Westchester and up into New Rochelle and then I wander into White Plains. And along the way, I passed by the open gates to the, the Bartow Pell Mansion. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but I've driven by and I never went in. The gates were open, so in I went. And the Bartow Pell Mansion 
was built in the 1830s by the founders and family of what later became Pelham Manor. It's a prime example of the late federal period in architecture, and it's gorgeous. There's a mansion, there's gardens, there's a fountain, and there was no one there, not a soul. It was mine. I was home. I may believe it was my mansion, my fountain, my gardens. And so I walked down along the beach, and the marsh had filled up with the high tides of the water and with the, all of that stuff. And as I was walking along this trail and just sort of looking, there were these spots where it was warm because the wind wasn't blowing, and it was really beautiful. And I, I often meditate on these walks, and what came to mind was a time not long ago, and I think I've told this story, when I went out to the beach, and I was pretty upset with God on this day. A lot of stuff had happened, and it was cold winter's day, and it was crisp and bright. And I'm walking the trails, and I started out quietly by saying, you know, God, why? Why do you put us through this stuff? And as no trees fell on my path or lightning struck, I got a little louder, and I said, you know, and why this? Why did we have to go through 9-11? It wasn't long after that. Why do gay people or people who are different than others suddenly have to become targets? What did you make them in the first place for if you really wanted them to be targets? Why are people living on the street? How come Matthew Shepard had to die? Why did my brother have to die? What is all of this stuff? Is this some kind of a game? Why did you, if you are the father, put your son on a cross? It all came out. By the end of 20 minutes or so, I was shaking. I was exhausted. I was crying. And I stopped. And it was very quiet. And after a few seconds, either from deeply inside of me or from the wind or wherever, I heard, are you done? <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of remember smiling and all those, yeah. And that was it. You know, I was done. I really wasn't looking for an answer. I wasn't expecting any answers. I just wanted to know I had been heard. I wanted to know that God the All-Highest had heard me from deep down inside where it hurt the most. And I wanted to know that God was still there. That's what I wanted to know on that day. And I don't see much difference between that day in my own way having that affirmed and what we're reading about in Daniel. In fact, I think that's the story that permeates all 66, 73, 82, or whatever number of books of whatever Bible that you choose, that the people just want to know that God hears them. Even to the degree that Moses and God had this covenant Moses, God said to them, yes, you are my children. You are my beloved. I am here. I am with you no matter what. I will always be with you. What do I have to do to prove it to you? I'm yours. Fine. I'll put it in writing. <laughs> you see, we look for permanence. We like to be sure of things. We like to know that things are where we left them when we go back to find them. We like to have things to depend upon. 
Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore we shall not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall in the sea, though the waters roar and the foam and the mountains quake with their surging, surging, be not afraid. And of course Jesus knew this and all and more. And in Mark's reading this morning, when one of the disciples says to Jesus, look, Rabbi, look at these large stones, look at these buildings, wow. You know, it sounds like the disciples saying, hey, Yahshua, look at that. Nothing will ever shake those stones and that building. What a wonder it is, surely. That will last forever. And Yeshua might well have said, you haven't seen anything yet, my friend. Don't look for the answers here in these humans, things humans can build. Don't look for safe haven in the midst of wars or natural events or upheavals or anything else because it's all going to come and it's all going to go. Just like even these stones and this building will. But me and you, we will always be together in the presence of Abba God, the All Highest. Surely I tell you that the kingdom of God is near and you haven't seen anything yet. And it reminds me as I close of what a friend of mine recently said to me. Sandy is brilliant. I love talking with her. And we were talking about life and death and transition and energy and energy fields in the universe. And she says, you know, when I die, she says, I expect that when I die and I get to wherever it is I go and I look around, the first thing I'm going to say is, wow, I never thought of that. And at this time, when we prepare for Thanksgiving and all that means, let us be filled with gratitude for all we see and know. But let us also be filled with the wonder and assurance of God the All-Highest, always with us, and how much more there is. That, wow, never thought about that. So for today, the message. We are God's beloved Hear that in all of these stories and know it is true. Hear that in your hearts and believe. Place it into action so that others can be touched by your faith. So that they too can say, wow, never thought about that. And find the comfort and the love and the presence of God who is always with us that you know at this very moment. Amen. Amen. Amen.